Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio, Thursday, April 11th, 2013, and I'm your host, Michael Gordon. Thanks for tuning into the show today. An interesting show lined up for you today. The podcast is about mind versus brain, and uh, this is a very uh, much debated topic in the uh, field of psychology, in academia, and research, and uh, we're going to streamline the topic today to address, you know, more daily life concerns as it regards our um, psychological and emotional health in uh, in our lives. So, just a quick note to welcome you to the program, and um, for those of you who are who are listening in to the archive show, thank you very much for listening in. And um, all of our shows are archived on the website. It's blogtalkradio.com forward slash the mind whisperer. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account, so we look forward to hearing from you and uh, and building the show. And as always, this is a live call-in show, and uh, we always appreciate having your input on the show, and you can call in and ask questions. You can also participate via the chat forum online on uh, on the blog page. And, um, you know, if you call in or, or text me something during the show on the chat, uh, I'm I'm more than happy to uh, engage you on that topic or any questions that you have. And um, we are going to be having some guests. I know I've been saying that for a while on the program, but uh, we will be having guests in the upcoming shows on a variety of topics. And you can also find a um, link to uh, the video archive of the show uh, on the Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash mindwhisperer. All right, so let's jump right into the topic today. And we're looking at mind versus brain or mind or brain and uh, the way I titled the program was Can Consciousness Heal? And uh, just a bit of background on this topic this is what's called the hard topic uh, or the hard problem I should say uh, in in the field of psychology and the reason that it's called the hard problem is because um, in some ways because of the differences of approach in the different fields in, of inquiry in, in psychology, it's it's a, a very difficult topic to reconcile and get consensus on in terms of what is consciousness and what is um, biology. So there's a whole school of uh, cognitive neuroscience uh, that looks at um, consciousness as being a function of brain and biology and neurobiology. In other words, this is what's deemed bottom-up um, causation. What they mean by that is literally that the from the cells upward um, and all the uh, synaptic activity in the brain and the um, biological um, hormonal aspects of um, brain function, electrical activity, generate activity in the brain, which we recognize as uh, perception and thought and cognition and information processing, and therefore we have consciousness. And so our sense of identity and um, our, 
our experience as a subjective being and a personal experience in the world is a function of that bottom-up causality. At the same time, there's a whole other um, camp that uh, looks at consciousness as being a function of what we call top-down causality. In other words, that consciousness is a priori of the biology, that, it, that consciousness is some, somehow embodied um, above the regulatory and the biological aspects of organic brain function and, and our physiology, and not separate from it, but that it is um, a, a superior uh, position in terms of functionality. And personally, I subscribe to uh, that second point of view. And it's not just a, a personal preference or certainly not a, a metaphysical um, bias. It, the one field of research that is the most compelling to me uh, when it, and, and, and across various different, um, you know, the medical science field, uh, the, the psychological and clinical psychological field and psychiatric field is the area of placebo. And again and again, we know now through um, you know meta-analyses of studies, and certainly meta-analyses of pharmacological uh, studies done on the efficacy of drugs, that placebo is very high. And in fact, it's been unreported or misreported in uh, in study after study that were uh, primarily funded by the pharmaceutical companies themselves to, to test the efficacy of their drugs. And you can skew the data to say that there there is a placebo effect to a certain amount. Now, what we mean by placebo is is that in double-blind um, randomized clinical trials, they um, test a, uh, a drug that you know, they want to put on the market, and let's say it's a painkiller, and with a control group, they actually will give what's called a placebo. A placebo is essentially a sugar pill. And the idea being that the, they want to test whether the subjects in the study are um, merely responding um, to the to the issuing of the drug in a psychological sense, that su the suggestibility that there is a predictable positive outcome to give them benefit for their symptoms. So let's say they people who are suffering chronic headaches or um, chronic pain of some kind, maybe back pain, and that this pain relieving medication um, is supported to be highly um, effective. And so they're actually giving sugar pills, which actually have no pharmacological effect on the body, no, no noticeable pharmacological effect on the body, except for a little rise in maybe in blood sugar, um, but certainly not, are not affecting the uh, endorphin levels or pain receptors in the body. And they'll contrast that with um, the group that's actually taking the um, dosage of the medication, where they would be observing, you know, pharmacological um, effects of of that drug and how it affects pain receptors in the body. And the outcome of these trials, often what they find is that there is a high level of placebo effect. In other words, the people um, reported noticing a lessening of pain who took the sugar pills. So this is kind of a fascinating thing. And uh, there is a researcher at McGill University named Amir Raj who quotes uh, some research. I think it's actually um, possibly his own. I'm not going to check up on this, but it's possibly his own original research on a psychiatrist underdosing their patients. So this is in a, in, a, in a way kind of a placebo effect. In other words, the patients were being prescribed antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. 
and the dosage called for 20, 20 milligrams a day of, say, Welbutrin, Welbutrin being an anti-anxiety medication, and um, the patients believed they were getting the proper dosage that would reduce their symptoms and give them a calmer you know, affect. Um, however, 65% of the psychiatrists interviewed in the study disclosed that they were underdosing their patients. In other words, the patients thought they were getting the full dosage, but the psychiatrists were actually giving them 5 milligrams. And they found that the, the patients were still benefiting. And, and so this is based on what we call placebo, that the perceived effect was that their their um, symptoms or their real effect is that their symptoms had reduced. But there's no pharmacological intervention. In other words, there's the the drug that is supposed to be enacting a certain chemical process in the body or biochemical electrical process in the brain or the body um, still has an effect. Now, why is that possible if that substance is not actually present? Is it just the subconscious mind making up that the symptoms are, are different? Well, no, because the symptoms actually do reduce. So what is happening in the body? Well, nothing that we take as a pharmaceutical substance or any kind of what we call exogenous substance, as a substance that's outside of our system, can have an effect on our body if it's not already something that has an effect on a, an endogenous uh, process in the body. In other words, an inherent, intrinsic, native uh, process in the body. So the, the very obvious example of that is painkillers. So when you have pain reduction medication, um, such as um, uh, Percocet, for example, it's it's operating on receptor cells in the brain that um, transmit a pain signal to and you know create an inflammatory response or a pain signal response um, to stimulation in the body. And so endorphins are the are the neurotransmitter, the hormone that are um, signaling that process across the synaptic gap in the in the in the nerves and in the receptors in the brain. And so something like Percocet can um, boost that endorphin response or the pain relieving response in the body. Well, that wouldn't happen if there wasn't naturally an endorphin in the body in the first place. So. Um, endorphins can be released, as many of you might know, through other means such as exercise. And so when we exercise, you know, we hear of um, um, the, the runner's wall where runners, you know, experience, you know, a little bit of pain in their lungs and they're exerting themselves and all of a sudden they break through that wall and they, sorry, not the wall, but the high. And the runner's high is when when we naturally release the um, endorphins in the body as a way of um, allowing us to push push through the immediate perception of pain or limitation of our breathing. And pause just a moment here as I'm going to close the windows. There's a lot of noise happening. And so if we can trigger an endorphin release in the body through exercise, through stimulation of exercise, it's a natural process that the body is going to push through its own uh, pain barrier, then the same thing can occur with other, uh, clearly occurs with other biochemical processes in the body, such as um, hormones that help us sleep, like melatonin or um, dopamine, which is a pleasure response, and et cetera, et cetera. And I've talked on the program previously about how um, we can be overly habituated to you know, certain processes um, in our, in our um, psychoembiological um, behaviors. 
So with dopamine, for example, any addiction is essentially operating on the dopamine circuit, and that is the reward center of the brain. So we kind of become fixated that something is pleasurable, like eating a donut or meeting a person that we like or chocolate or um, gambling, anything that we have a perceived beneficial outcome. We can become wired into releasing dopamine in the brain in response to that process. And so you can see that... um, this sort of what we call top-down regulation isn't uh, just simply a mind-over-matter thing. It is mind-affecting processes, biochemical processes in the body. So placebo effect isn't simply just suggestion. It is uh, something that is triggering um, these neuropeptides in our system that are carrying signals and uh, processes all throughout our interdependent body systems. So this has a profound implication um, for things like homeopathy, which uh, homeopathy is something that's been used traditionally for centuries and is uh, the subject of quite debated research. Um, and the idea that homeopathy simply works on um, a cognitive preconception of, of benefit, in other words, a placebo effect, um, has been disproved because it works on animals. And animals are, are not necessarily um, going to be predisposed to consciously knowing that the substance is going to do something for them or not. Um, So we can give them this uh, um, homeopathic remedy, which has barely a molecular trace of anything left of the original substance that is a like thing, much like a vaccination, to what we're trying to heal. So um, we give them something if they have an inflammatory response in the body. We give them something that's like that inflammatory thing, an allergen or whatever, and it actually helps calm the system down, much like you give someone a little bit of the pathogen um, um, in, in an illness like a flu, and there's a little bit of the flu in the actual flu vaccine. Well, in the case of homeopathy, there's barely anything there. So that trace element is somehow signaling something in the body at a pre-perception level, if it works on animals, um, that's not just placebo. And so these things have been tested um, over and over again in, in, in empirical testing and um, prove ex- efficacy. So it really does um, bring up a lot of, of um, critical um, questions about the role of, say, pharmacological intervention. What I mean by that is psych- psychiatric or psychotropic drugs for things like depression and anxiety. Um, and it does give a lot more credence to things that were previously considered fringe or um, really inconsequential or even, you know, quite ridiculed as being quack medicine. And a good example of that is um, somebody like Louise L. Hay, who was in in the 80s, wrote a a very popular book called You Can Heal Your Life, which was based on identifying negative beliefs and how they impact us, you know, psychobiologically, and then countering them with positive affirmations. And so, you know, the scientific community balked at it and said this is just, you know, positive thinking and wishful thinking and it really doesn't do anything. You, know, you need medicine. Well, now we can look at uh, outpatient programs in, you know, um, cardiac surgery departments and uh, psychiatric wards and in terminal, you know, uh, palliative care and see that these positive affirmations are not just wishful thinking. They actually have a, a very well-researched uh, uh, mindfulness effect on on our health, our psychological, and our, our immune health. And, of course, they're not going to um, override necessarily gross organic 
pathology or disease in the body, but they can have incredibly strong regulatory effect and have an overall benefit in terms of um, resilience of our immunity and, and certainly of our uh, mental well-being. So very simply put, what we think we become, and we don't, because we have such a focus on disease, we don't think in terms of preventative health care or mental health care, but what we think we become. And so we have a somewhere between 60, 70,000 thoughts a day. If most of those are negative, we're not accounting for how destructive those negative cognitions, as they're called, negative thoughts, um, are making us sick. And we know now through another uh, emerging field of medicine and scientific research called epigenetics, which means the outside influence on our genetic makeup, that uh, uh, our previously held you know, doctrine about uh, DNA and genetics is that gen DNA is something you're born with, it's hereditary, and you're just predisposed to getting disease or having you know, um, uh, things that are going to be expressed in your genetic um, code uh, that you can't help. And now we know through epigenetics and, and emerging research that there are secondary sets of markers that um, can or cannot be expressed based on outside influences, which can be anything. It can be stress in, early in, in, in our early environment, which I've talked about on the program. Um, they can be environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera. And stress being you know, the number one factor in terms of um, how we respond, and we're all individually wired differently. So that's a very, uh, very, very dense but um, um, uh, broad overview of this of the, I guess, of the health consequences or the, or the health benefits, if you will, of um, this mind or brain problem, mind versus brain. And so um, it's really important to look at these two things as interdependent. The brain is an organ, which is going to affect consciousness. But is the brain consciousness? Is our consciousness just a function of this physical machine, you know, um, or is consciousness something that has a secondary order of, of self-awareness and, and organizing intelligence? And um, when you look at the effects of consciousness and mindfulness on the regulatory systems of the body, on mental health, and on indeed physical health and immunity, you can see that that top-down regulation is, is very much in effect and certainly there with placebo. Well, uh, I've enjoyed this talk today. I hope that you have as well. Um, it's been uh, great to host the program again. And as always, um, looking forward to your feedback and uh, it's my pleasure to bring you these topics, and we look forward to talking to you next time on the program. Please tune in to any of the archive shows, and um, appreciate your feedback through the Facebook page, through the, through the Twitter account. You can find all these links on our Blog Talk Radio page. I'm Michael Gordon. You've been listening to the Mind Whisperer podcast on Blog Talk Radio, available through iTunes, and we'll talk to you next time. In the meantime... Be well and take care.